Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasia and today I'm speaking to Charlie DeFoss, Ecological Monitor at and Beyond Pinter Private Game Reserve. Charlie will talk to us about how she began her career in conservation and give us a glimpse into what it means to work in wildlife research and environmental protection. Welcome, Charlie. It's nice to be able to chat with you as well. You work as an ecological monitor at Pinda, but it's, um, it's been quite a journey for you. You were born and raised in Cape Town, quite far from South Africa's national parks and bush regions. What motivated you to follow a career in wildlife research and conservation? Growing up in Cape Town, there's so many beautiful nature reserves around us. And I grew up in a very outdoorsy, nature-enthusiastic family. So we would spend all our weekends either at the beach or somewhere up in the mountains hiking. But apart from that, my earliest memory as a kid is actually in Kruger National Park. And I think I must have been three at the age because I remember my sister distinctively sitting next to me in a little baby chair and we're only two years apart. And I just remember we drove through this little dip, like river dip, and there was a pride of lions that came walking straight past us. I can't remember much else of my childhood, but that definitely grabbed me. And then apart from that, the fact that my family always went to these beautiful reserves and parks that we have, even though we lived so far, we would always make like a 21-hour trip to get to Kruger on a yearly basis. Um, and that was always the highlight for me of every year was getting into the bush and experiencing the wildlife. And from a young age, I knew I would never be able to do an office job. I just like the great outdoors too much. And I feel like I'm missing out if I'm sitting inside an office and I can't experience what is out there. So yeah, that's definitely what motivated me to go into conservation. And just also wanting to leave the world a better place somehow, but always knowing it had to do something with the wilderness. Once it actually came to settling down and starting your career, why did you choose and beyond? And how did you end up working at Pinder Private Game Reserve? So I've heard about Ambion before through family and friends that either had experience in dealing with the Ambion company for work or for travel, but it actually came about while I was still living and working in Malawi, um, completing my master's study there on Zebra. Um, we were busy translocating mass game there from Majeti Wildlife Reserve run by African Parks to one of their, two of their other reserves also located in Malawi. And the Tracy and Duplessis game capture team came to assist with that. And during that time, Simon, the reserve manager for Pinda, was traveling with them. And that's where I actually started chatting to him about Ambiond and Pinda. And from there, the rest was sort of mm -hmm. history. Um, so I completed my master's degree. And then as luck would have it, I don't know what you call it, luck or fate, but they had a position opening up exactly as I finished my studies for the position that I'm still currently in as an ecological monitor. And I couldn't believe it, so I immediately applied for it and just fortunate enough to have been employed. Yeah, just everything coming together in the, in the right place at the right time. Yeah, definitely. And also just meeting the right people along the way and always knowing that Ambion has been such an amazing company for conservation 
and that they really try and push the forefront of research as well. Mm. Your title is Ecological Monitor, but it, it does include a strong research element as well. Can you tell us about what your job actually involves and what your typical day looks like? <laughs> I always laugh at that question just because there is no <laughs> typical day. Every day out in the bush is very different. But yeah, it's very much a, a fieldwork related job, um, which requires us to um, monitor our priority species, which will be our big five, cheetah, ahina and sunni. And then to go out every day and collect data on those animals, see how they're doing, are they adapting in the environment, how recently are they feeding, to try and get as much fine scale data into their behavior. But apart from that, it's also conducting game counts, whether it is through camera trap surveys or driving transects or even aerial surveys, and trying to see the trends throughout the general prey species as well that occur within the reserve. It's also assisting external researchers with their different research projects and helping them collect their data. And apart from that, also compiling ID kits. Cheetah, for instance, they have each very unique spot pattern. So in order to identify them, we try and get facial feature shots preferably a right-hand side and a left-hand side shot, as well as body shots so we can identify them based on their unique spot pattern. So when we're collecting the data, it's fine-scale data, we know exactly which individual we're collecting the data on as well. But then coming from the data collected in the field, it's also writing reports, writing management plans, and then apart from that, here at Ambion Pinder, I'm also responsible for running one of the two volunteer houses. So we have volunteers that come in and assist us as well, and they go out on drive with us and help us to collect the various data. Yeah, it's a very exciting job, but typically a day would start with sunrise and we'll head out for three to four hours try and collect as much data out there as possible as it heats up midday, start heading back to home or office. And then we'll be trying to enter that data into our new and beyonds citing database, also compiling the ID kits, report writing. And then again in the afternoon, as soon as it cools down a little bit, head out again for another three, four hours. It's quite a long day and quite a lot going on there. Yeah, we always joke and say it's a full-time job, but... <laughs> We, we love this lifestyle, though. It's, it's something you get hooked on because you never know what you're going to experience out there. There are some species-specific projects that you've been involved in at Pinda. Can you tell us a little bit about those and whether you have a favorite species to work with? And um, if you do, what makes them your favorites? <laughs> so coming to the species-specific projects, we are involved with Rhinos Without Borders, in which we have translocated white rhino here from Ambion Pinda to Botswana. And that's always very exciting to be a part. As you know, you are supplying rhinos into an area to get a viable population up and running, as well as being a part of the Black Rhino Range Expansion Project. Those type of things are always exciting. As you know, you're assisting with the conservation of highly endangered species. Also, we are involved with the EWT Cheetah Motor Population Program, in which it is basically translocating and reintroducing cheetah from all these different smaller private game reserves to try and maintain the genetic integrity. And here at Ambion Pinda, our cheetah population is definitely thriving and one of those very special populations that tend to be 
a population that does so well that we're able to supply to other populations, enhance their genetic diversity. Cheetah are quite susceptible to getting inbred. The Panthera leopard survey we have up and running every two years. And then lastly, but I think one of the most exciting ones to have been a part of, the pangolin reintroduction project we have going here. I think some people might have heard, but here at Ambion Pinda, the last record for the Temenix pangolin dates back to 1986. And last year in June, we started reintroducing them back into this area where they no longer mm-hmm. occur. And it's been doing really, really well. Um, it requires intensive amount of time out there, but it's been such a privilege to be a part of, to bring a species back into an area and to try and get a viable population up and running. But in terms of then getting to, do I have a favorite species? I always joke, I always say I I don't think I have a favorite species, but I definitely have some favorite individuals out there. There's a black rhino male on the reserve that's definitely one of my favorites. If I get to see him, he's just such an inquisitive character, not typical black rhino um, behavior always. Like Black rhinos tend to be known for being more aggressive in comparison to white rhino. Mm-hmm. They'll usually huff and puff a little bit. They might even basically have a little bit of a standoff, but this one is always very inquisitive. We'll walk a little bit closer. Yeah, he's just quite an amazing animal. And then apart from that, I think I also have quite a big soft spot for cheetah. I think they're amazingly resilient. They're quite vulnerable to other predators like ahina, lion, leopards, and seeing them survive and thrive, that for me is very special. And also knowing that you don't get to see them elsewhere as often as what we get to see them here on Ambion. Pindak, definitely a species I have a big soft spot for, but I think in general, any spotted cat does get me quite excited. Those are definitely two of the species that Pinder's quite well known for, so uh, good choices there. <laughs> I think you start appreciating what you have around you. If you've been exploring other reserves or other parts of Africa, you start realizing how special it is here. The amount of cheetah we get to see here quite often, if I listen to my other friends talk where they are, they barely ever get to see them and then rhinos as well. So it's definitely a privilege and learning the different behavioral aspects of them because you get to see them so often definitely makes you appreciate them so much more. A little bit earlier, you mentioned that you first became aware of and beyond when you were working in Malawi, doing your master's thesis on zebra. Have you had any other experience working outside of South Africa? What are the, the conservation challenges that you face in different countries? Mm. Yeah, so that's been my only experience out of South Africa was Malawi. I was based there for a year and a half. Wonderful country, wonderful people. And it's a truly wild place. In terms of facing the same issues in conservation, it's very similar. It's also poaching is a big problem there. I think they're even more amplified than in South Africa because it's such Mm -hmm. a poorer country and people don't yet understand the value of having conservation in protected areas. I think they are slowly getting there with Mm -hmm. African parks that have moved in and starting to increase their community relationships. But... Apart from that, it was challenging in the fact that the infrastructure was very limited and the size of the reserves are massive. So if I think in relation to here at Ambion Pinda, the reserve we were based on was about three times the size, but only had seven Mm -hmm. roads going through it. 
So there was a lot of wilderness areas that we were almost never able to survey. Um, and the only way to know what was going on there would be to do aerial counts or aerial surveys, which we all know is extremely costly. But then apart from that, because it's still a country that's very unknown mm -hmm. in terms of tourism, you can see that they're still very reliant on donor funding, which we all know isn't always sustainable. It's much better to have a tourism-based company like and beyond, which you know the revenue is a sustainable revenue. You're not reliant on your donors to donate and you don't know where your money is coming in from. Um, so that was quite challenging in that regard mm -hmm. as well as I think there's a lot that they would like to improve and they are getting there. It's just a lot more difficult when you're reliant on donors instead of ecotourism. And it being such an unknown country, I mean, we barely ever saw tourists there, like driving around in the reserve. We always joked as researchers, we were like, oh, it's such a busy day if we saw three tourist vehicles driving around. Where here at Ambion, it's so different. It's still quite well managed in the sense that if you're in a mm -hmm. sighting, there isn't as many vehicles. Um, you get to see the animals as they would naturally behave without being crowded by tourists. But it's strange to be in a reserve, but not see people. And then you actually start thinking, but where does the money come from? So I think that is a big challenge that they're facing. Then, as I also said, the limited infrastructure trying to monitor, manage their, I mean, those guys that were, were part of their anti-poaching patrol teams had to walk miles to be able to serve, survey. Here at Ambion, they also do the same, but it's easy in terms of there's road networks as well to move around when you have to really mm -hmm. get going. So that was quite challenging factors. And then here as well, I think by now, Ambion Pinda is so established that our surrounding communities see the benefit of it. And they all quite have good relationships with the reserve. But in Malawi, people are so poor. And literally the division between reserve yes. and communities was so strong in the sense that even as you drive in the communities, you would not see a single tree. And then at the moment you hit the reserve fence lines, it is trees all over the place. And you can see the people just looking in mm -hmm. at a tree and going like, but that might be my wood or my charcoal that I can cook on tonight. So it, it's definitely getting there in the sense that people are realizing that reserves have other benefits, like creating job, jobs, which of course means a stable income to the families living in the communities. But I think it's going to take a while still to change people's perception, where in South Africa, in general, people are quite aware of it. But then on the other hand, coming to South Africa again, the challenges here is there's a lot of small privately owned game reserves with fences around. And unfortunately, fences nowadays all throughout Africa is what mitigates human wildlife conflict. And without it, the wildlife would not be there. Mm -hmm. People would, um, I mean, if you have a lion running through your community, eating your cattle, community members will unfortunately um, try and kill it. So fences are vital for protecting the animals and the people and there as well. But because South Africa has got so much private landowners and private game reserves that are fenced off, here we have to intensively manage a little bit more. And in that sense, act like the animals mm -hmm. would move if there was no fences. That's why these reintroductions and translocations are vital at maintaining mm -hmm. um, your population health and getting new genetics in. So that's the challenge in South Africa where compared to some of the other African countries, 
it's much bigger wilderness areas and the animals can sort of manage themselves because they have space to move to. It's quite an interesting take on things. I mean, over-tourism gets quite a bad rap and, and it is a genuine concern. But from what you've been saying about Malawi, you know, it's very obvious that the model of sustainable conservation-based ecotourism has a very, very large role to play, particularly in funding and, and in creating infrastructure. Definitely. And I think a lot of it also to do with getting your communities involved as well. We all know sustainable ecotourism isn't just for the protection of the wildlife, but also taking care of the people surrounding the reserves. And it was definitely clear there that only the communities that started living around reserves that were starting to get up and running actually saw the benefits of it, where the communities living further away from those reserves were unaware of what is on their doorstep and also the benefits from it and from ecotourism. Mm -hmm. And then you start realizing how dependent South Africa actually is on their tourism. I mean, it's one of our biggest incomes into our economy. And it's so so crystal clear when you compare those two countries, both beautiful places to travel to, but you start seeing how you also need place for tourists to stay. You need mm. lodges, you need hotels, you need infrastructure, proper airports, all of that, which hopefully one day Malawi will get to as well. And I know people always debate about it, but as you said, the overcrowding of tourism, but at the same time, if that is your sustainable income to protect these wildlife areas, why not? Otherwise, it's just going to be utilized for something else, whether it be mm. crops, agriculture, or even just industrial areas. Every country wants to benefit their economy in some way or or another. And it's usually to the cost Mm -hmm. of those wild areas, unless you add a cost to it. And then the only way to do it sustainably is ecotourism. You mentioned earlier that while you were working with African Parks at Majete, which is run by African Parks in Malawi, you actually met Simon and some of the guys who work at Pinda doing translocations. Is the conservation community quite a tightly knit unit throughout Africa? Do you all work together and and share knowledge? So, for example, does some of the research that you are carrying out at Pinda, do you feel that it's going to contribute to conservation efforts elsewhere throughout Africa? Yes, the conservation community throughout Africa is quite interconnected. It is quite a small community. There's not that many people in conservation. But yes, I do believe that the research we are doing here at Ambion Pinda will benefit other places in Africa as well. If you just look mm-hmm. at the initial cheetah and lion reintroduction program that was here when Ambion Pinda started in 1993, that's now changed the way people reintroduce lions and cheetah, putting them into a smaller enclosure like a boma to break the homing tendency um, so that they don't try and escape the reserve and move back home. Yes, it's definitely in the forefront of conservation. Nowadays, it's with the Pangolin Reintroduction Program. We have been in touch with other places as well that has studied pangolins, trying to figure out what is the best way to monitor these so elusive creatures. There's definitely a lot to learn from one another, and it's not just here at Ambion Pinda. I mean, we're constantly talking to other people throughout Africa as well, what they've been trying. And I think that's the thing with nature. You're never going to know everything. They don't read the textbooks. They're always going to be doing something that you don't expect them to do. And we can definitely benefit from one another. And it's definitely something that we try and do here at Ambion Pinda is 
get in touch with other conservationists as much as possible and share as much knowledge on whether it is things that we have figured out mm. here or what they've tried elsewhere. Um, and only through that, the sharing of knowledge and research, I mean, it's always a constant or immediate success. Mm-hmm. So it is a very small field <laughs> of people. And at the same time, at the conferences you go to, it's always the same familiar faces that you do see there. And then you do realize it is a very small field and we all can learn from one another on what they're doing. You mentioned quite briefly the, the pangolins that you're working with and, and the research that you're doing on there. So, yes, the work there is we work together with the African Pangolin Working Group and the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Clinic. All our pangolins that we get into Ambion Pinda they are confiscated from either poachers and traders together with the South African police forces and the African Pangolin Working Group. Thereafter, they go to the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Clinic where they get their health assessments checked and, um, if needed, spend quite a lot of time in rehabilitation. A lot of them that come in are extremely stressed, have picked up some diseases from having been kept in quite harsh conditions. If you think it's a solitary burrowing animal, some people keep them in little cages, no places for their urine or feces to go to. Um, So it takes quite a long while at the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Clinic for them to be in a good health condition. And as soon as they're healthy, they started feeding well there, then they come to us. Then we start initiating what we call soft release. So that requires us taking them out every day for foraging. Anything from two to six hours, depending on how each individual is eating. And then the moment we see that they Mm. are eating well, that they are getting comfortable in their new area, starting to look for burrows, picking up weight, then we will release them into the field. But it does require some extensive post-monitoring thereafter. Because they're so susceptible to different diseases, they sometimes only express those diseases about six months after the release. We will go out initially the first two weeks, go and check up on them on a daily basis. Then thereafter, it goes down to about every three days, then to once every week. And so we try to get them down to once every month. We want them to be wild and free, have as little human interaction as possible. That's why we do decrease the amount of time that we spend with them. But it is to monitor their health, seeing if they're established. And then each of those individual pangolins are fitted with two monitoring devices, the one being our VHF tags, which allows us to find them in the field, and then also our satellite tags, which collect very fine-scale data on What time are they emerging out of the burrows? Where are they moving around? It gives us their GPS locations. Are they establishing their home ranges? Are they finally settling into this new area? And then um, so far, everything's looking positive. And the last thing we're now hoping for is a wild-born pup here on the reserve. And we're really keeping our fingers crossed because that's the last measure of success Mm -hmm. we need to see if this program is is a success but so far they're showing they're ticking all our other boxes so yeah it's definitely an amazing program to be a part of and to see what you can do for pangolin conservation i mean every individual we get in has a different story one of the individuals that we got in he was tiny when they initially found him Mm. um, on the side of the road close to kruger He was about the size of a big pen and could perfectly fit into a human hand if he was rolled up. 
And he's the first hand-reared individual to ever be released back into the wild. And then quite recently, we got an adult male that was actually caught in a poacher's snare that had developed skin necrosis and had two broken ribs. And he spent 110 days in rehabilitation before he was fit enough to be released back into the wild. And he's Mm -hmm. only been with us for about two weeks now, and he's doing amazingly well. Also knowing that you're giving a wild animal a second chance at a wild life, it's a special thing to do. It is hard work. It requires intensive hours, late nights out in the bush, walking in big five game reserves. Sometimes we do wonder what are we doing there, (laughs) especially if you encounter something dangerous, and especially at night. I mean, as humans, we're so reliant on our eyesight, but... At the same time, we know we're doing something amazing. And mm. as I said, we're just hoping for that wild-born pup. And that's the thing here is there's always these different programs up and running or projects to try and see what can else be done for conservation. I mean, it's a it's a never-ending field with different possibilities. I'm definitely going to have to get you back to tell us more in detail about the pangolins. <laughs> Yeah. You mentioned being out with the pangolins at night and having some some adventures with them. Obviously, from what you've been saying, you you spend a lot of your time out in the field working with wildlife. Have you had any memorable wildlife encounters that that happened while you've been out just going about your job? Oh, I think there's too many to mention. Yeah, it's quite a, <laughs> I don't know how you pick your favorite moments. There's really been some special encounters. Mm-hmm. But I think the ones that always stand out for me is interactions between different species. One that stands out for me is we were out that mm-hmm. evening monitoring a cheetah female and her three youngsters. And they were just settling in for the night and we were like just trying to see, okay, great, they're all in good health. And as we sat there, there was a leopard that suddenly appeared out Mm -hmm. of nowhere and started stalking this mom and her three cubs and gave them such a fright that all four of them scattered into different directions. And the leopard went for one of the youngsters chasing Mm -hmm. it. A leopard is much stronger than a cheetah. Um, They're much more muscular. And that female saw the leopard going for her youngster and she turned and chased that leopard up into a tree. (laughs) And that leopard leopard was petrified. Um, And then she actually ended up calling her three cubs, getting them all together and then disappearing into a thicket for the night. Um, that definitely stands out for me because it's not behavior you mm-hmm. expect. And then also seeing two cats together interacting. I mean, seeing a cheetah or a leopard on its own is special enough. But then seeing the two together, it's it's something really special. Apart from that, another cheetah story. I, I always mm-hmm. go back to cheetah. As you can see, I definitely have a soft spot for them. Um, also out monitoring the night, two cheetahs. It was late afternoon. Two cheetah brothers in the western section of the reserve. And... They also, once again, just started settling in for the night. And from afar, we could hear a lion calling. And I didn't pay much attention to it because, to be honest, I actually thought this lion is really far away. It's not anywhere near us. And I think it was less than 15 minutes later, a big male lion came striding down the road and he spotted those two cheetah and they spotted him as well. And he started chasing them. And the two cheetah were literally like playing tag. If he got too close to the one brother, the next brother would interfere and distract the lion. And so they were helping one another to get away from the lion. And then somewhere in the midst of all of us, a massive rhino, a black, sorry, a white rhino bull stepped out of the thickets and actually chased the lion off the cheetah. 
And I was just sitting there, like absolutely, utterly confused. <laughs> this rhino just interfered and literally chased the lion off the cheetah. I mean, that's not something you see every day. These three different species interacting. Yeah, it's still, it's definitely, I think, one of my most memorable experiences. And then apart from that, also out with one of my fellow researchers the one day and as a team, we are quite tight-knit, so we always joke around with one another. And that day, we were driving back from the offices after a long day, and jokingly, mm-hmm. he said, okay, if you can find me the specific female leopard tonight, you get a year's supply of ice cream. And if anybody knows me, they know I have a very, very sweet tooth, and specifically, ice cream is my thing. So I told him, okay, it's fine. Let's try and find this female, bets on. Luckily, I had some eyewitnesses on the vehicle with us as well. So we drove home. Lo and behold, what comes walking down the road straight towards our vehicle? The specific female leopard. (laughs) (laughs) So I got my year supply of ice cream on somebody else's account. Um, But as we were following her, seeing what she gets up to, jokingly, he goes, no, but if if she makes a kill tonight, I'll buy you a car. And I'm like... I don't know if that's a good bet to take because, <laughs> but never ever once told me, but if she does not, you owe me anything. So I thought, okay, I've got nothing to lose. <laughs> Bet's on. And next minute, I don't think it was even a minute, she crouches down and jumps into the thicket. <laughs> and next minute she comes walking out with a great daker in her mouth. So <laughs> I even have the photo evidence to prove it. I still, I'm still waiting for my vehicle, my brand new vehicle. But, <laughs> yeah, those were definitely some some memorable encounters. And I mean, you can't predict what you're going to see in the bush. There's definitely no way that I could have predicted that was going to happen that night. It was just absolutely, absolutely good luck on my side and bad luck on the fellow researchers' side. But yeah, I think that's the bush for you. You never know what you're going to encounter. And even just watching elephants midday and especially in summer heat going for a swim and watching the enjoyment on their faces um, that always stands out and how the youngsters will wrap their trunk around mom's tail to keep afloat those are always very very memorable experiences Mm -hmm. and especially as researchers we tend to be out at some of the strangers hours Mm -hmm. usually midday especially in summer months it's it's boiling hot um, even for us, we sometimes wish you can just retire to go and sit in the office, enjoy the aircon for a little bit. But at the same time, you get to see some bizarre behavior, specifically around watering holes at the time. And then you're usually the only person out because every sensible guest would go back to the lodge and enjoy the pool at that t- time of the day. Or even driving around late night, running after pangolins specifically, we've also have had mm. some memorable experiences. So it's definitely an amazing lifestyle. We always so we think we're into this because we like having good stories to tell around yeah. the fire. <laughs> Absolutely, it always helps. Yeah. And um, as far as career highlights, what would you say has been your highlight of your time at Pinda so far? Oh, that for me is a very difficult question. Um, but I think the Pangolin mm. Reintroduction Program definitely stands out for me as one of my career highlights. It's it's something so new. Um, we know so little about these creatures. 
I mean, most people never even get to see them in the bush. I've talked to fellow people who's lived and worked in the bush for more than 30, 40 years, and majority of them has never even seen a pangolin. They are extremely elusive, mm-hmm. extremely difficult to find. And with this program, we've had the amazing privilege of getting to see them quite regularly and up close and document some bizarre behavior. I mean, how many people know how a pangolin groom and clean themselves? Very few people have ever been able to see it. Uh, there's a lot still more that we would like to learn specifically regarding the gestation period and how long does the pup stay with its mother before it disperses. And there's a lot more to learn, but it's been such an amazing program to be a part of and to see the amount of dedication from our fellow staff members. I mean, it's it's long hours, it's long days. You're still busy with your, your day where you, in summer months, sometimes even get up at five and now you're still walking through the bush at 12 at night following pangolins, but also the dedication from our fellow um, companies that are involved with us, from the African Pangolin Working Group to the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Clinic, to see the amount of dedication and the fine-scale data that we're collecting. It's, It's really something, I think, that is opening up my eyes to the possibilities that are still out there. It really is an amazing project. Lastly, to end off with, you know, we've spoken a bit about the conservation community. And you've also mentioned that you work a lot with volunteers at Pinda. Is there any piece of advice that you'd like to give to anybody who is considering a career in conservation? Yes, most definitely. I can't stress experience. Try and get as much experience as possible, whether it is through volunteering or applying for student internships or holiday work. It's a it's a very competitive field in the sense that there isn't a lot of work available for people that want to go into, into conservation. And you really have to stand out if you're the person that wants to get that job. There's so many people, I think, that would love to have a career in conservation. It's an amazing thing to pursue. And you feel the benefits of doing your job. You feel like you're doing good, leaving the world in a better place. But... I think in order to get in, try and get as much experience as possible, especially as students, use your holidays smartly. Go phone friends, anybody you know, write emails even to companies you do not know. Just try and get that experience. Spend as much hours as you can possibly out there in the bush. Experience goes a long way. And then apart from that, as we've talked about, the conservation community is a very tight-knit, small community. And you must always remember that everybody knows everyone. So you must always treat every single person you meet as if it might be your future Mm -hmm. boss. You you never know. Maybe the quarter where you've done your work experience might one day become the conservation manager for that reserve. Mm -hmm. And the way you treat every single person reflects a lot and it goes a long way. So wherever you are, treat every single person as your future boss because you never know where your recommendation for that position might come from. I think that's pretty good advice for life in general as well. <laughs> Charlie, thank you yeah. so much. It's It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you and I'll definitely have to get you back to speak more about, about the pangolins and the project and the issues that they face. But for now, thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's been very nice as well from my side. Thank you for listening to and Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have any comments or feedback, 
or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us an email at firesidechats at andbeyond.com. We'd love to hear from you.